welcome back. It is good to be with you. I'm going to echo what everybody else said. It's good to be all together in the same spot. Uh, if you're in the Bible already, just back up one page or, or chapter to chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. That's what we're going to pick up today. We're in a new series. Uh, we split the book of, or the gospel of Mark in half, roughly, into two series, about six weeks each. In the first six weeks, we are asking the question, who is Jesus? And then last week, we began kind of moving into the back half of, of Mark, and we're asking, what is the gospel? And so, who is Jesus? He is prophet, he is preacher, he is teacher, he is the son of God. We looked at these things, and then, what is his message? What is the gospel? What is the good news that Jesus brings us? And last week, we talked about death to life, this bit of contrast that Jesus would die to bring us life, and that we're to learn how to die to this life in order to live for Jesus, a bit of this contrast, a bit of opposite, if you will. And today's message is, is similar in some ways, and we'll put this on the, on the screen. The gospel transforms our hearts. Jesus taught a gospel of inner transformation resulting in relationship with God. Inner change is valued over appearance as appearances can be misleading, right? On the, out, on, on the outside, we often try and clean up that, clean up our appearance, neglecting the inside. The gospel is the opposite. We just heard as Nancy was reading, we, we see these scribes, these religious leaders that love to walk around in these long robes and have magnificent titles and get the best places to sit when people gather. And then we saw, by contrast, a widow giving very little. Even when others would give abundantly, give larger sums, we saw this, this widow make a sacrifice because that little that she gave was more costly to her than the large sums of others. Jesus cares about what is on our inside. The gospel transforms what's inside of us. We often spend a lot of time trying to figure out the outside so we look good in front of others. I was trying to, I was listening to Alex as he was talking through some of the announcements, and he said, if you love to cook, we love to eat. And I kind of laughed, and I thought, the skinniest guy on our team just said, we love to eat. Now, if I'd said it, it'd have made a difference, right? Sometimes the outsides are what we focus on too much. Jesus is focused in on our hearts. Mark 11, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Funny, uh, my men's group, we're, we have an early morning, like, dark out, early morning uh, on Tuesdays. We were just reading this passage on Tuesday in a different gospel, and uh, we spent the morning talking about it. And, and here's the setting. Jesus and his disciples, and there's a crowd following them. Some of that crowd are disciples. Some are sightseers, if you will. Um, imagine Jesus 2,000 years ago as somebody who's kind of internet famous, right? Like the stories are trending around what he's doing, and there's a crowd that are kind of gathering to see. And so there's this crowd following, and as he works his way through different places, there are different things that take place. As he nears Jerusalem, that's where we are today. And so he's nearing into Jerusalem. His disciples and others are with him. And he's, he's going to Jerusalem, which is the beginning of his final week of his life. So not only is he headed to Jerusalem, but he knows, and he's been teaching us, this is what we looked at last week, he's headed to the cross. 
So he's going to go lay his life down for you and for me, for those in the story, for all who will believe. But there's a different scene around his entrance into Jerusalem. Verse 2. And, they said, and, he said to, uh, and he said to them, meaning to the disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So as they prepare to enter into Jerusalem, there has been this prophetic telling hundreds, if not thousands, uh, hundreds, if not well over a thousand years prior, how the Messiah will enter into Jerusalem. And it will be on a colt. It will be on a donkey, which sets up this contrast of this story as the people want to champion him as a new hero, a savior. Can you start that for me, please? As they want to champion him as a new savior and a hero, you would think majestic stallion, like riding in on a gigantic horse. And yet he's riding in on this lowly colt. There's this bit of contrast again going on. Like we said last week, kind of a death and life thing, this opposite, this leaning into the inside of us, not just the outside, where in the real world, not that our faith isn't in the real world, but in the world around us, we often focus on the outside instead of the inside. As long as we look good, it doesn't matter if we're dying inside, we'll put on a smile and tell people we're doing really well. And so Jesus enters in, and there's this kind of contrasting image of what's going on. As he sends his disciples in to get this donkey, it goes just as he tells them it will go. And when it does, he tells them what to say. When they say it, it goes well. And so here we are, and they bring this colt back to him. Verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. This would be a passage you would hear read on Palm Sunday, the week prior to Easter. Again, this is the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life as he heads towards the cross. And as he enters in, they shout for him, Hosanna, right? Praise be to God, Hosanna. And they lay down their cloaks for him, kind of making a, a red carpet, if you will, for an entrance. But it's a mock red carpet. It's not really an important red carpet. It's just what the people have. It's their clothes, and they begin to lay down branches, palm branches, where we get our term Palm Sunday. And they're laying this down, and they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, he who comes in David. David was their king, their, their most prominent king. He's also the one that was from his lineage, is promised to be the Savior. And they're, they're saying that this Savior is coming in. And they're talking about this coming kingdom of David. And what they're talking about is a human kingdom. And they're championing a human hero. And yet Jesus is anything but that. You see, the gospel message is this message that, that really leans in right here. That Jesus comes, and in very opposite of what might be thought, he lays down his life in order to give us life. 
he dies in order to give us victory, that his sinless life becomes a perfect sacrifice, that he is nailed to a cross to trade his death for our sin, for our penalty. He takes our place. As Jesus will be laid in a grave and dead for three days, he forgives our sins. He pays the penalty for our sins. When he is resurrected from the grave, his resurrection gives us new life. As Jesus ascends back to heaven and pours out his spirit upon us, he empowers us to change. That's the gospel message. That change, that life, that empowerment, it comes through death. You see, the people around Jesus, including his disciples, they see it a different way. Like they've, they've played this out. Who is this Savior, this Messiah? Who is our hero, our victor? Who is this son of David that is coming? And they see it differently. They see it as a political hero, a military hero, someone who will overthrow the corrupt government and anti-Christian government of Rome, or in their case, anti-Jewish government. Sound familiar? And yet he's there to do anything other than that. He's, he's there to literally die. But by dying, he will bring the kingdom. It's not a human kingdom, but it's his kingdom. By dying, he will cover their sin. By resurrecting, he will give them life. He will give them power, but it's not earthly power. It is spiritual power, power to be transformed, to change, to live in new ways. So they want to make him one thing, but he's aiming at something different. And I'm going to put this on the screen. Missing the purpose. Jesus conquers and reigns by suffering and dying, not through power and might. We miss what God is doing if we are too invested in our way of things. The modern-day church version of this is missing this, thinking that politics is our solution. I say this left or right, right? This guy or that guy or this woman or that woman, don't really care. I mean, I care, don't get me wrong, but that's not the answer. And sometimes we get so invested in our way, like if we just get the right candidate, if we just get the right thing, if we're just part of the right party, if we just vote the right way, if we just vote on this thing, and Jesus would say, but that's not what I came to do. I came to do something else. And you can see that just 2,000 years ago, they're struggling with the same kind of their way versus Jesus' way just not seeing how they're lining up. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus is now in Jerusalem, final week of his life. Verse 12, and on the following day when they came to Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig, leaf, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Kind of a hard passage to understand. And it's going to be this passage. And then in a little bit, we're going to come back to this very thing. Um, and it's because it doesn't translate well. You guys, when I said it doesn't translate well, like a bunch of heads went back down. <laughs> not going to change anything, just for the record. All right? <laughs> Still going to say the same thing. So it doesn't translate well because... It says it wasn't the season for figs, but that phrase right there actually means it wasn't producing, right? And so kind of a euphemism. Sometimes we say something is cool, 
or hot or fire, and we all mean the same thing. But it's not the same thing. In fact, those are opposites, right? And so the way they would speak was not in seed. Well, it wasn't producing fruit is the issue. But it doesn't translate like that. So if it has leaves, it should be producing fruit. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus is going towards the fig tree because it should be producing fruit. And it's not. And that's the problem. However we get there, we all understand when we read this, the problem is it's not producing fruit. But then it becomes a weird story where he curses the tree. You're like, that seems like an overreaction. <laughs> then we back up and go, did I just say Jesus had an overreaction? Like, that's bad, right? <laughs> now I'm going to hell for sure. You're moving for lightning, right? Your spouse is elbowing you. Don't say that. <laughs> but it's because we don't understand the story in its passage. So hold on to that idea. It's not producing fruit, right? Keep that concept there for a second, right? And then this. Remember, we always talk about, look at the passages that become before and after, right? That the story before, the story after. The author didn't randomly like shuffle a deck of stories and put them together. There's a purpose. And even if the author, Mark, was not being pur pur purposeful, for sure God is being purposeful right here, right? He's telling us these stories together so that we'll understand them, uh, even the hard to understand ones. And so sometimes the content and the context around it gives us a clue. So remember that we always look at what's around it to help us understand. So, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So from the fig tree, we move to, Jim, uh, to Jesus cleansing the temple, right? Now, here's what's going on inside of it. And we, again, we kind of lose it culturally. We don't understand it. We don't do the same thing. Right? If we went outside and we sold you a book or a t-shirt, it wouldn't be the same idea. What they're doing is they're, they're having people come in, and when they come in to bring their offering, their like tithes and offerings to their church, the synagogue or the temple, right? They're bringing them in Roman money. And they're telling them, listen, your Roman money is unholy. You have to exchange it for Hebrew money at a cost. Oh, your animal is not a good enough animal for a sacrifice, so we'll provide you one at a cost. And they're extorting the people under the banner of their faith, like under the banner of being a pastor, an elder, a leader. Under that banner, they're using that authority to extort the people, to tell them what they have is not good enough, and their worship needs to be different, and they will sell them different at a price. It's ugly, right? Now, when you read the other accounts where Jesus drives these people out at the end of a whip, now you know why. His anger here in this moment is because the religious elite are extorting the people. Rather than serving them and caring for them, they're extorting them. Verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Isn't it said that my house would be called a house of prayer for all nations? Side note, can't wait next, uh, next Sunday evening to get together. Uh, Pastor Stephen and I, we're working through some, some worship, some prayer time together. Can't wait to kind of restart this. We, we stopped doing this with COVID. We did it uh, once or twice online. It's not the same. So next Sunday, 6, 6 p.m., come, come join us. We're going to sit out there on the patio like we often do with the, the lights and the 
We're going to worship and pray together. And I can't tell you how much I look forward to it and how important it is for all of you to be there. So Jesus says this, and, and I want to ask you these two questions. Let me read this again, since I kind of rabbit trailed a little bit. It says, and he would not allow them, anyone, to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So what does the temple look like on the outside? Right? I don't mean the physical building, like, you know, what kind of windows does it have? But from the outside, the temple appears to be this place of worship. But what's going on on the inside? It's actually where the religious elite are extorting other people, right? It has this image of holiness, of purity, of faith, representing God even on the outside. Yet inside, what is taking place is so far from what should be. Are you with me? Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. Jesus. They want to destroy Jesus. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Same question. What do the priests look like on the outside with their priestly robes and their phylacteries and their other things? I just said phylacteries because that just proves I went to school, right? So, uh, <laughs> big word. Prayer boxes. That's what it means. There you go. You're welcome. My schooling now is complete. It's all made worth it. <laughs> what do they look like on the outside? They look very spiritual, right? <clears throat> Not, see, I'm a bad example. So, but what do they look like? They look very, well, maybe I'm a good example. Not so holy on the outside, but doing okay inside, right? <laughs> on, their, on, their, on the outside, they look pretty spiritual, pretty holy. What are they doing? They're seeking to kill Jesus. Like the temple, what's got on the outside? Train wreck on the inside, right? That's the theological term, right? So Jesus deals with what is actually true. That's kind of our idea today. The outside doesn't matter as much as the inside, right? Verse 19, so keep that in mind. And when evening came, they went out to the city and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So we're back to the fig tree, right? And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered, right? Remember the point. The fig tree was supposed to be producing fruit, and it wasn't. Jesus curses it. It's a weird story. And then you keep reading. And the temple should be producing fruit as well. It should be producing worship. What is it producing? Probably more money and corruption than anything else. And what, the, what about the priests, those in, the, in their fancy robes and all that? What, what should they be doing? They should be bringing the people to God. What are they doing? They're extorting the people and looking to kill Jesus. See, on the outside, what we have is a leafy fig tree. On the outside, what we have is the temple, the amazing temple. What we have on the outside is the priestly robes, the garments, the things they wear. What do we have on the inside? Well, on the inside of this tree, we have nothing. And Jesus symbolically curses. He really does it, but it is a symbolic curse over that tree. And then we move to the temple. And we see the same thing. Looks good on the outside, but not producing any fruit, right? Then we move to the priest, same idea. Looks good on the outside, but really not producing any fruit of holiness, of faith, of worship. So I'll put this on the screen for you. Jesus curses the fig tree. Jesus curses the fig tree, which is a symbol of Judaism, a well-known symbol of Judaism, and cleanses the Jewish temple. Both appear fruitful, but are empty inside, warning us to live out our faith truly. If you go back and you read through, if you remember last year, we read all the way through the Old Testament, or many, many did, 
in our community groups. And one of the things that we saw as they were building the temple, like we studied the book of Exodus together, when they were building the tabernacle as they moved through the desert, there's this imagery of figs, right? Harkens back to the garden. The fig tree is an image of Judaism. Jesus curses this because it, like Judaism, is not doing what it should be doing. Reminds us to not neglect what we should be doing. To not think, oh, well, if I just look good on the outside, all good. But Jesus says, no, but, but your heart. Verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. Jesus didn't give two quick applications. Kind of a little self-test. We were talking before church um, about those in-home COVID tests, right? And how accurate or not accurate maybe they are or whatever, right? We don't know. I'm not a scientist. I'm not going there. But <laughs> self-test. This is a self-test. This is not for me to test you. This is for you to test you. You with me? Jesus didn't give two quick little in-home self-tests. Here's the first one. Do we truly trust God to provide what we're praying for? Let me give you a comment. Remember, it was a self-test. It was just a comment. How do we value? So like when we have a time to gather and pray together, we know how we value it by how we respond to that. Is that fair? Hey, so people in the church are getting together to pray together and worship together. Let's be a part of that. Probably leans more towards trusting God in our prayers. When the creator of the universe wants to hear your voice, that should, that should give you moment for pause. That he could do anything he wants to do and he wants to be with you. That should encourage you to do that. When he calls us to be a body, my house will be called a house of prayer, he says. When that's the mission, that's the focus, that's the idea, then we should respond to that. That, that should motivate us to be there. <clears throat> Verse 24. And wherever you stand praying... Again, assuming you do, right? And wherever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So kind of second at-home self-test of your faith, of your genuineness. Are you forgiving as God has forgiven you, right? Do you live a life of forgiving other people who, for whatever reason, harm you, right? Or, or have hurt you, who don't care for you in the way that Maybe they should. Are you forgiving? Remembering how much you have been forgiven for. So do we trust God in prayer that he will meet our needs? And, and do we forgive others? Jesus, Jesus gives these two quick kind of snapshots. You can kind of test yourself and ask, okay, so how am I doing? However you rate yourself good, right? But note that they're both internal things, right? Do I trust, believe in God to supply for me? Do I forgive other people? Those aren't external things, right? So I'm going to put this on the screen. Faith and forgiveness. Jesus gives us two quick ways to self-assess our faith. Do we pray trusting in God to provide for us? And do we really forgive others as we have been forgiven? Right? Two quick ways just to kind of take a snapshot of where you are in your faith at any given moment. And I think that this is something, at least in my experience, that ebbs and flows. Right? That you have hard weeks, and sometimes you're not in the same places as another week. Or maybe in your hard week, you really lean into God. Some do, some, some don't. And how do we do? 
Maybe you've been injured by somebody you care about. Maybe something's brought that to the surface lately, right? And, and how are you in that? How are, are you forgiving in that moment, right? Just, again, two quick self-tests. Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, he's talking to the, to the religious elite. He's talking to the religious leadership, and he's asking, like, who gave you the authority to chase out the money changers? Like, who do you think you are? That's what they're really saying, right? Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I love that Jesus answers their question with a question. Verse 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet, right? So Jesus says, now you tell me, I, I'll answer your question. Have you been asking me all these questions? I've been answering them. Will you answer one for me and I'll, I'll answer this. Whose authority was John baptizing with, right? John the Baptist. He is the forerunner to Jesus, the long-awaited. He breaks the 400 years of silence between God speaking to his people, going dark, and God speaking again, saying, this is the Messiah, pointing to Jesus. That's John the Baptist, a prophet for sure. But see, the religious elite at that time wanted him dead, didn't obey him. Like Jesus, they didn't want anything to do with him, and eventually Herod kills him. So he says, you tell me by whose authority was John. Now, here's what they say. Now, if we say his authority was from heaven, from God, then he's going to say, why don't you obey him? Why don't you do what he said if he was a prophet of God? But if we say he wasn't a prophet of God, the people will turn on us because they believe he was a prophet from God. So are they really asking Jesus questions to grow and challenge and, 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 and increase their faith? No. They're asking Jesus questions to trip him up because they don't have an answer or at least their answer that would be honest will cause a revolt in the people because the people clearly knew God's hand was on John. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love Jesus' answer there. You don't answer, I don't answer, right? Pretty simple. Mark 12, here's what Jesus does do. Verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them, that's the religious leaders, in parables. So instead of answering, instead of telling them, he's going to tell them this parable. A parable is a story that you understand, put alongside a spiritual truth. So something human you can understand so that you understand the spiritual message, right? Parable. Verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard <clears throat> and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went to another Country. So here's the parable, the setting or the context for a parable, the story, is a vineyard that's been put together and done right and then leased out to people to take care of. Now, side note, where else have we heard about something that was supposed to produce fruit? Ah, good. Martha's paying attention. I like that. That's good. All right. So this is a theme, right? Remember, with the stuff that all surrounds it, God has a purpose for. So he tells them a parable. Note that the parable is consistent with the theme that we're talking about. So he has this uh, wine press and, and pit and, and tower, and he leases it out to tenants. 
And it says that the owner goes to another country. Okay, verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner, who leases it out, goes to get what he has due. And the servant that he sends is beat and sent back. Right? Verse 4. And again, he sent them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And another and him they killed. With so many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now the hearers are the religious elite, the Jewish leadership. And they're beginning to pick this up. Okay. The servants he's talking about are all the prophets of God. That God has been sending to call us to produce that fruit of holiness, of righteousness, of faithfulness. And all those prophets that throughout history were killed or rejected or beaten or mistreated, even like John the Baptist, right? Jesus continues, verse 6, he has still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Sound familiar? God is sending his son into this story. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, come, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What are the religious leaders trying to do? Kill Jesus, right? What are they thinking? Like, if we get rid of this guy, we get the power back, right? Because this guy's taking all the people. And like John the Baptist before him, like the people believe in him. They know he's from God. And so if we kill him, we win. Now, again, think human terms make sense. Gospel terms, they're just fulfilling the will of God. But that's what's in their heart. Whether or not God uses it, even Jesus predicts it, says it will happen, doesn't change the fact of what's in their heart. So Jesus tells this parable about a vineyard, something that should be producing fruit, and he sends his, the owner sends his servants after he leaves, and they beat him and treat him shamefully and kill them. And so the owner says, for sure, I'll send my son. They'll, they'll respect him. They don't. But they kill him, Jesus said. And again, Jesus proclaims his death to come. Verse 9, and will the owner, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus answers his own question. He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. I want you to hear that. As Jesus speaks to the religious leadership of Judaism. He says, so what will the owner do? What will, and we, we understand the owner is God. I'm like, okay, so what's God supposed to do in this moment? Well, he's going to strip you of your authority, of your place, of your position, of your power, and he's going to give it to somebody else, right? He's going to take what he's given you away, and he's going to give it to somebody else. As Jesus basically kind of proclaims the shift from Judaism to Christianity. Because you have been so far away in your hearts, because you've taken your robes and things and said that was your righteousness because you have the beauty of the temple, but inside of it you extort the people. Because of all that, you're going to lose what God has given you. Because of that, because it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside, it matters where you are in the heart. You see, the gospel message is one of inner transformation. I can't think of the words. I was listening to a song that Stephen was leading us, leading us earlier about, about God's power to transform. We treat the gospel so differently today. 
the Western American church has, has reduced the gospel to saying a prayer for forgiveness and then living eternally with God. That's it. They would never say that's it. That's it. Really, that's what is proclaimed. Well, go forward at a crusade or say this prayer, you know, sign this card or, or do this, and, and then you will go to heaven. Don't you want to go to heaven? You don't want to go to hell. But Jesus preaches a gospel of inner transformation today. That we would be drawn near to God today. That we would live in this upside-down kingdom of his where things are often the opposite of what they think we think they are. Where somehow by serving we're leading and somehow by dying we're living and somehow instead of what we look like, it's really at the core of our being who we are. That Jesus desires inner transformation over outer image. And that he gives these these images, especially the cursing of this fig tree, this crazy moment where there's seemingly this weird overreaction. But he says, you appear one way, but you are without anything. And it is to be the message for us to understand that it's not how we look. It's really what we produce. And again, when I say produce, please hear me. There is nothing you can do. There is no good you can add to the gospel. There's nothing you or I can do to cause God to love us or forgive us. That was all accomplished by Christ. Our job is to learn how to live inside of it. Not even how to try harder, do better. That's not it. That's moralism. That's a works-based faith. Ours is to learn how to submit to the Spirit of God inside of us. To allow God to animate, motivate, move, empower us. So that we will learn from the inside out how to live in this kingdom of Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus says this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says you're like a really nice tombstone that is super clean and looks good, but inside all you have is death. That was the warning 2,000 years ago to Christianity, uh, to Judaism. And I would say it's the warning to us today. That we would not put on a good face that we would have this outward face to the world as if we are something that we are not, but rather that we would allow God to work and move and live and transform the inside of us. And that will cause what comes out of us to be different. That we will learn that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In the overflow of the heart, our hands will serve or our feet will go. Or our church will be because it starts inside of us. So living a gospel life, we'll put this up on the screen. Jesus focuses inwardly on our hearts. Do we truly live an inward devoted life of faith or just act like it in public? What inside of us needs to change? What inside of us 
needs to be handed over to God. So that it's not what we look like. It's not that we show up here and, you know, and the bride says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so, I'm so good right now. But I'm not. And he says, me too. And he's not. But that we would live from the inside out, whether good or bad. And you know, it doesn't mean you have to vomit all over the next person who asks you how you're doing. But, <laughs> but remember, it's not how you look. It's who you are in Christ inside. That's what is going to shape who you are in life. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. As you focus in on the inside of us, the part of us that we can't control anyways, the part of us that is so riddled with sin and, and, and so overcome often with evil, but that you have promised us upon baptism that your spirit resides inside of us. What an incredible promise, Lord. That your spirit begins to cause us to be and, and to go and to change. That you change us from the inside out. So that no longer do we try and act patient, but God, you give us patience. No longer do we try not to act angry, but Lord, inside you've given us peace and we become peaceful. That when we hurt inside, you give us comfort. We don't just try and suck it up on the outside. That when we struggle, Lord, we, we struggle with your strength. We don't have to pretend we're okay. We have the church to walk with us. Forgive us of our egos that we try and manage the outside more than the inside. Forgive us when we, the church, are whitewashed tombs. When we look really beautiful on the outside, Lord, but inside there is just death and ugly and uncleanness and sin. Not only forgive us, Lord, but transform us. Help us to be what you have created us to be. You gave your life that we would be changed. You rose from the dead to have victory over this life and even death. You have poured out your spirit upon us that we might be like you. That's slow and, and, and it takes time. But you've done everything necessary for us to be changed. So Jesus, we love you. We seek to follow you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Church, we're